Welcome to Goalposts. I'm Teresa Halbrooks, CEO of an award-winning consulting, PR, and events firm. After spending 11 years in the NFL, I launched a company that has allowed me to create my own legacy. I've been able to coach some of the most well-known professional athletes, celebrities, and CEOs across the country for more than 20 years. Gaining their respect wasn't easy, but it taught me to have a solid game plan for my future. I'm hoping that my journey and the many stories that happened along the way will not only entertain you, but encourage and inspire you to create your game plan to reach your goals. After all, someone's going to be successful. It might as well be you. Let's get started. Today on the podcast, we have Mike Rhodes. I asked Mike to join us because he has such an incredible story of his personal journey and bucket list item of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. What an adventure, and I'm so glad he could share it with us. Here's the interview. All right, I have Mike Rhodes with us on this episode of Goalpost. Mike, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, sure. So Mike, I wanted to touch base with you. You've got such a unique personal journey. We do a lot of things on the podcast that talks about um, professional development and business conversations. And I was recently reminded about a personal story that you had shared with me. And I wanted to touch base on that story. But before we do, can you give us a little bit of background? Who is Mike Rhodes? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, basically, I, I am the guy that uh, went through several years of college as well as graduate school to become an English professor, only to uh, segue into the world of international stone trade, which I've been doing for the past 25 years. So I've been uh, doing that involved with uh, projects all over North America, supplying marble, granite, that kind of things for buildings, working with architects on specifications and whatnot. And in my spare time, uh, I've run a, a publishing company for music as well, pitched tunes for TV shows and things like that as well. So that's that's kind of you know who I am on the you know as far as the making money side, kind of having fun side. But all, also, I guess to uh, segue into this a little bit better, I'm the guy that you could ask to do anything, and I'd probably, as long as it's within reason, would be the one that would do it. So, yeah. It- that's a great segue. That's where we're going. So you, a few years ago, not too long ago, you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is a, a bucket list item for some folks that they, that's just the pinnacle of climbing. And so start with how that conversation and the thought of, hey, this is something I want to do. Where did this come from? Give us, give us the background on this. Well, Oddly enough, ever since I was a little kid, I've, I've always wanted, always wished I could draw really well. And that was like the one thing, you know, I could write well, I could compose music and do that. But I'm a stick figure guy. But I could always draw mountains really well because it just, you know, jagged line or a smooth line. Um, anyway, I've always had a fascination with mountains. And uh, it's something that I thought that at some point, you know, I would do. I just didn't realize that at the uh, young age of 49, it would turn into a, uh, essentially a, a friend of my wife's calling me up who had gone blind, essentially from a, a genetic disease called choroideremia. 
And uh, he's, you know, after a little bit of small talk said, uh, hey, do you want to go climb the tallest, you know, volcano and uh, uh, single standing mountain in the world? And I was like, um, yeah, it sounds cool. Uh, where are you talking about? And that's when he said Kilimanjaro. Um, and he had been climbing some mountains in Central America where he lives in Guatemala. And he was doing that to raise um, money for research for choroideremia. And so we kind of put this together as uh, a way to raise money for um, finding a cure because it's such a, quantitatively, it's such a small audience of people that have it that it's something that has to have private funding because the drug companies don't see it being a situation where there's enough profit in it for them to go, you know, at it aggressively. So that's, that's kind of how, that was the impetus for it. And uh, then basically uh, over a year's worth of training, um, doing hikes over in Percy Warner Park uh, and adding weight and to my backpack, breaking all the gear in, trying to learn as much as I could about it um, and doing uh, cryotherapy at my wife's place. That, that's what we, what I did to get ready to go. And basically my first hike that I'd ever been on being Mount Kilimanjaro. That was the first one. So talk to me about your friend. Did, did he have any concern? Did you have any concern? He's, he's blind and wants to do this climb. And so you're basically agreeing to be his, um, his guide, you know, talk to me about that. And then how did you guys get started? You give us, give us the rundown. I want to hear the full story. Well, interestingly enough, um, Scott has been with this disease, of course, been going progressively blind for several years. And, uh, so he had ended up trying to find a place in the world where he could live, um, to more or less feel safe once he lost his eyesight and uh, Guatemala happened to be that place. Uh, as far as him reaching out to me, I think he thought, well, Mike's we're in about 240, so if I go down, I got somebody to pick me up. I think that's what it kind of came down to. It wasn't, you know, much of a cerebral thing. It was just like, I think he has the physical strength to maybe pull me out of a ditch or pick me up and throw me over his shoulder if that happens to uh, get to that point, you know. Um, but uh Primarily, that's that's kind of where the whole thing just just started with was you know uh, he he just thought that I was a good fit for that and again it goes back to the, the beginning where yeah I'm the guy that you could say hey would you do this and he pretty much knew that I would say yeah I want to do that so uh, and it, you know as far as getting ready for it at, at first it was daunting but the more you got into it and really you know it, for me it became almost like a medicine to be able to go over in the woods and just walk up and down the hills for an hour and continually push myself to do more and more and more still not having really any idea of what a more than a, a two hour or three hour hike would entail because we're talking about essentially the route that we took being 60 miles and having an elevation change of about 14,000 feet and starting at about 6,000 feet. So essentially imagine starting at Denver, climbing to the highest mountain just outside of Denver at 14,000 feet, and then going up another, you know, 5,000, 6,000 feet above that. 
My so gosh. That part, that part you could only, you know, mentally kind of run through your head, but you didn't let it run through too long because you would just be like, ah, you know, what am I doing? You know, if you thought about it too much, you just had to just do it. So. Right. Um, so you took off. When did you depart for this journey and how did you meet up with Scott and what was the adventure like? Well, as with, uh, it pretty much started off like, um, I guess like, uh, Odysseus and essentially all plans, uh, as far as the trip were concerned, completely went haywire from the get go. I uh, started leaving here in Nashville. Um, and I guess it was end of September, 2018. And as I'm going to the airport, I see a huge cloud bank rolling in and I'm going, Oh no, this, this isn't cool. Well, sure enough, the flight from here to Atlanta was delayed, which meant I missed my flight there. So then it meant that I was not going to be able to meet Scott in Amsterdam, which had me freaked out because now there's a blind guy walk, walking around Amsterdam trying to get on a plane to go to Africa. So the best they could do is put me on um, Air France into Paris and then from Paris into, um, it was uh, Nairobi. And I had to ask, like, Nairobi, where the hell's Nairobi? I don't, and they're like, less in Kenya. And I'm like, was well, that close to Tanzania? I'm like, I don't even have a, you know, a reference of Africa right now to know where I'm going or anything. Oh yeah, yeah, it's right next to it. Okay, sure, let's let's do that. So into Paris, uh, and then from Paris into Nairobi, essentially um, being seated next to probably the the one guy on the plane who was a Frenchman that probably hadn't had a shower in three years. Um, for nine excruciating hours uh, and then getting into Nairobi and it's like I emerged on a completely different planet. Um, it was basically daishikis and you know everything that you would think you'd see in a Casablanca film but it was like in an airport and I was you know the lone six foot four blonde haired white guy walking around <laughs> which was just it was it was wild like i said it's like i merged on a completely different planet um but then another flight from there into tanzania and then not realizing that the airport is over three hours away from arusha so it meant that i got in that night at about two or three o'clock in the morning so uh didn't see scott that night wasn't sure if everything was okay or not um was hoping that he was there the next morning and uh, as it turned out, everything worked out fine for him. They treated him just with kick gloves. Uh, they, uh, once he got to the hotel, the, uh, all the restaurants were closed, but the people there were just super sweet. The, one of the um, uh, security guards actually took him to his room, helped him put his things up and everything, and then asked me if he'd eaten. And he said, well, no, I haven't, but I'm okay. I've got something. He's like, no, 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 no. I take you, we get you some food now. It's okay. And so he went and took him, woke up the guy in the restaurant, had him cook him some stuff and then sat there and talked with him for an hour or so while you know, he was eating stuff that evening. Um, just it's, it's kind of, it was everything that you would kind of expect going to Africa, you know, seeing the abject poverty and stuff like that, but also seeing a, a different side of it in that seeing so much, you know, just, optimism and hope and just you know strong people that are just i mean it's beautiful that part of it was so uh we met that next morning for coffee um after you know two days of traveling nearly um and uh, we had one day 
to get ready to leave the next morning and head up. And so uh, at that point, it was a long bus ride because the route that we took was the longest route you can take starting on the north side of Kilimanjaro, which is near Kenya. Um, it, it involves a little less, there's like no climbing, it's just all trekking. So that was better for Scott. Um, but it just meant that we were gonna be on a, a trail that was about six inches wide um, versus the other side of the mountain, which is almost like a four lane highway where a lot of people try and come up because it's a quicker ascent. And a lot of the tour groups start on the south side of the mountain. So uh, our, our, our trek was a lot more scenic. We didn't pass but maybe five people in seven days the whole way going up there. Um, and it was just complete, just serenity um, and quiet. I mean, you, you, you stand still and if the wind wasn't blowing, you just, your heartbeat was deafening, you know. So you had a guide, how many people were in your group and kind of tell us about the trek up, how far could you get in a day? How many days did it take? Walk us through that. Well, we did, um, we had about 12 people that were our support group, which kind of freaked me out because I was thinking, oh, I'll have like one or two porters and Scott was gonna have two and a guide. No, we had like a small platoon of guys that were going with us. Uh, so Scott had two guys, one that would walk behind him and one that would walk in front of him. And um, this was their groups. They had worked with some people with handicaps and disabilities in the past, but they'd never worked with a blind guy before. So it was a learning experience for them as well. And so the, the guy in front, they started figuring out um, Scott, his hearing, like a lot of people that, that lose their sight, their other faculties really kick in. And so for him, his hearing was uh, getting to the sense where he could, the guy in front would tap on rocks to the left or right and Scott could tell and he would, he would move and it would cut down on the number of times that he would stumble or, you know, uh, get off the trail and that kind of thing. And then going up an incline, the guy behind him, if Scott made a misstep and started to fall back, then the guy behind him would be there to kind of catch him. Uh, once we got to the, um, the night or wherever we would camp for the night, uh, Scott was on me at that point. <laughs> so then it was like, uh, he's, you know, he'd be doing this to get his cup and nearly knocking it over because he's still very self-sufficient and that kind of thing. And I'd be like, whoa, whoa, dude, dude, wait a minute. You know, and I'd have to grab it, and, um, you know, go get things and stuff like that. Let him kind of lead him out to where the, uh, our little porta potty thing was at and that kind of, you know, the, the essentials essentially. Um, but overall we would, typically do um, anywhere from a minimum of six to as many as 12 miles a day. Um, overall, it was a seven day trip. Um, and uh, the absolute hardest part was the, uh, the final, um, the day of the final ascent, which should have been, um, usually it's about, I think they do it in eight or nine hours and we took somewhere around 14, 15 hours to do it. Um, and part of it was, it was we started going up such a, you know, an intense incline, uh, Scott would lose his balance a lot and it would, it would really kind of freak him out. He'd stop, and, you know, and then he had to catch his breathing and then kind of settle back down and then we'd start walking again. Um, so that, 
that whole part of it was was just excruciatingly hard. Um, uh, at, at the same time, uh, about three quarters of the way up the mountain, the, the final ascent, that morning all of a sudden being able to see after being dark, because we, we were supposed to start at midnight, we started at 2 a.m. instead. Um, Scott wanted to have more daylight time because he still has a little bit of peripheral vision and he wanted to be able to maybe make something out if he could and be more in the light. So, um, but about three quarters of the way up, all of a sudden after having headlamps on, all of a sudden you could kind of see and it was just like a little bit of a grayish light and it's like, oh wow, I mean, it was just like like that. And uh, within just a matter of seconds, I stopped and was drinking some water and happened to turn and look. And there off in the distance was the sun breaking over the clouds for that morning. And you could see basically the entire curve of the earth. Yes, flat earthers, I hate to tell you this, but the earth is round. And as the sun comes up, um, essentially, those rays create an effect, which uh, in um, Cap well, Colorado, they would call alpenglow, but it was like super intense. And within a few seconds, we were just like in this like super, super just red, almost like just crazy color, like just being projected on us. And it only lasted for maybe 30 seconds. And then it just, and it was like gray rocks and stuff again. But that whole experience is just, you know, knowing that we were that close and then having that happen was just like that little bit of like, uh, to, to make it to the top. And, um, so, you know, we, we finally did make it to the top. And, uh, at, at that point, that's where things started getting kind of squirrely because, uh, we were suffering from fairly severe, uh, oxygen deprivation. Um, I, that's the only thing I did not study before I went, um, which was what different levels of oxygen deprivation um, mean as far as your body functioning. And uh, usually in the 60s, like 68 or so, they'll put you on O2. Our oxygen levels were in the 50s. So we, you know, we were not going to be there very long, um, and which most people don't, you know, if you're, unless you're just born in that environment, do it a lot. So uh, started coming back down and uh, the funny, funny little stories aside was just trying to, you know, video stuff and take pictures and whatnot. And actually just, I didn't think it would happen. I didn't understand it, but I just completely lost control of my emotions while I'm like standing there and videoing it and going, Oh my God, this is so stupid. Uh, you know, but it, and, and part of that is, oxygen deprivation but I think part of it was just the the fact that doing something so out of what I thought I would ever do in my life and accomplishing it you know um but we started making our way back down and Scott of course was having a tough time at this point because um part of the reason you ascend it so early in the morning is that the temperature there is hovering around anywhere from 20 below to two above and when it gets really cold at night, this really um, brittle ground that makes up the side of the volcano is frozen solid. So it gives you better traction going up. But when the sun hits it, it becomes real loose. So then you're almost like you're kind of skiing through powder trying to come down 
the mountain and to go in a straight line versus uh, traversing back and forth coming up. So get back to the um, tent and of course, the guide that was with me that day, um, we got back what I thought was gonna be a long while before Scott did. And I'd sat down, he brought me some tea, he was drinking some tea, having um, like apples or something like that. And all of a sudden the tent opens and it's Scott. I was like, whoa, I mean, I'd only been there for like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, at this point it had already gotten dark. And uh, I looked at Scott and I was like, wow, you must, must have like really run. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's just out of breath. And I'm like, still not thinking anything about it. And, uh, but I did notice that the uh, team leader, Joshua, was just really intently just staring at him. And uh, I was like, kind of said, is everything okay? What's going on? And uh, he said, uh, Scott's O2 level is not coming up. He said, you know, as you go down the mountain, your O2 level comes up. But Scott is continually going down. And I said, well, what, what was it? recently he said well i just checked it it was uh 40 48 and i was like oh that doesn't sound good he says well, i'm going to give you a uh, 20 minutes he says scott try to drink some water just rest for a minute he goes i'll come back and then i test you again okay so he had a little pulse oximeter to, to check our o2 levels so i'm talking to scott and as i'm talking to him you know he's still it's kind of like I'm talking to a guy and he's just like somebody else who's listened to me talk to a guy, which is kind of weird because he's just kind of like, yeah, huh. you know, that's kind of his answers to questions. And it was at that point I noticed his breathing was just really this bizarre thing where his chest was just like, duck, 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 duck. and I said, Scott, is that how you breathe, man? I said, that looks weird. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, it was within just a few minutes after that, um, Joshua comes back in, he checks his O2 reading again, and I just see just his face just like drops. And I'm like, well, what is it? And Scott's like, how's, how's it look? He says, Scott, this is not good because your O2 level is 36. And he says, uh, Scott's like, is, is what, is, what does that mean? He's like, I, I need you, to, Scott, I need you to come with me and go back to the tent and lie down and tell me what you feel, okay? He's like, oh, okay. So I'm still kind of oblivious to the fact and still had no cognizance of the fact that 38, I mean, you would be in a hospital with probably a respirator and all kinds of stuff going on at this point. And I hear this just gut-wrenching, from the other tent and then it's just like Swahili blah, 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 blah. guys are running around outside the tent and I'm like oh my god oh my god and, and Joshua comes back in and opens it the tent door and he says Michael Michael you must get Scott's things together he must come off the mountain now or he was going to die and I'm like what <laughs> so I go in there and I'm packing his bag and everything he goes and gets six guys that had stayed at base camp there were six that went up with us and um, the six that stayed at base camp, he went and told them that they had to take turns basically with Scott on their back to the next camp, which was eight hours away. And so these six guys take off in the middle of the night with Scott on their back and they're switching him out as they go there. Once they get to the, the next little town, it's called Harumbo, that one guy, 
turns around and he walks all the way back, eight hours back in the middle of the night, back to our base camp. The other five guys at this point then put Scott on a stretcher, put him in a, his mummy bag, and then carry him for another eight hours down to the nearest road where they can meet a, uh, a ranger to pick him up. And at that point, they think, take him to the hospital. Um, the highest helipad in the world is at the base of Kilimanjaro Mountain. But because we had waited late to ascend and have a little bit more daylight time, it meant that we got back at dark. And the only problem with that is that you're so high at that elevation that and when the, the nighttime rolls in, the atmosphere gets even lighter and the helicopter couldn't get there to evacuate him. So that was the only thing that was that saved his life were those six guys carrying him for 16 hours straight. But once he got down to the road, they um, his O2 level had come back up to the mid-60s. So they're like, okay, you're going to be all right. Um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> I had to go to sleep that night not knowing whether he died. So luckily the next morning I woke up, the, um, uh, my porter came and he had tea, he brought it to me and he didn't say anything. And I was just like, Oh, Oh God. And then Joshua comes in, Michael, it's okay. It's got this good. You know, like, Oh, thank God. man. All right, cool. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing though, um, is that, and it wasn't until after the fact, but one of the things, uh, with Scott is that he, he had, like I said, he had, had that little bit of peripheral vision that was left. And um, probably the thing that pushed him into total blindness was this trip, because it did mention that um, having oxygen deprivation at a sustained amount and stuff like that has caused people with sight, you know, full sight to lose their sight. Um, so for him, that was his last sighted trip up a mountain. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a story that is absolutely amazing. I, and inspiring, you know, something that was an idea that he, you know, you had a friend call and ask, would you be willing to do this? And for you guys to take that journey and trek together, um, and come down the other side and he's okay. I, you know, the ending of the story is that he's okay. And it, it's a memory yeah. that, that he shares with you that you'll have forever. And that is, oh, that's a great story. So Mike, what advice would you give someone that is thinking about taking on a challenge that seems just so far out there, um, whether it's climbing, the highest mountain or taking on something else, what advice would you give them? Um, for me, I'll, I'll kind of default back on my uh, liberal arts training and it's learn as much about it as you can. Um, I thought that I had all the bases covered. I thought I had equipment that I needed and you know, the different kind of specified things that were on the checklists and stuff like that. Um, my little bit of an oversight basically cost me two big toenails, uh, because it wasn't until after I got back, I realized not only had I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and, 
and um, completely uh, traversed the, the largest single standing mountain in the world. But I also done so wearing boots that were too small. And unfortunately, I never figured that out because I was just doing short, you know, two hour hikes. But when you're talking about being in a situation where you're walking downhill for eight hours, um, essentially, it was like somebody getting a little vice and putting it on your toenail and doing like that for eight hours. So uh, it took a while to get over that. So, I mean, really, and I think that that kind of like, you know, whether it's a business venture or whether it's uh, uh, some sort of expedition or uh, even a romantic endeavor, I mean, whatever it is, you got to learn as much as you can about, you know, what you're going after and the situation that surrounds it, because uh, the more stuff that you can mitigate that could, you know, pop up and, and bite you, the the better the journey is. And the journey is what you remember more than, um, really the, you know, getting to the desired uh, object that you're trying to achieve, I think. No, oh, that's great advice. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that uh, folks that start out on this expedition to climb Mount Kilimanjaro don't make it. There's a, there's a good pocket of folks that don't get to the top. They, they have issues, they have to, you know, there, there's lots of reasons why they don't make it. Do you happen to know the statistics of how many people actually reach the peak? It's uh, it's less than 50%. So when I when I got ready to go, one of the things that was kind of daunting to me was uh, as I was kind of going through and reading articles and just trying to, you know, fill my little goodie bag of knowledge, basically. Uh, one of the things, one of the articles I came across was uh, Navratilova, Martina Navratilova, uh, world, you know, you know, tennis phenom and just an incredible athlete. And she didn't make it. And she said she would never try anything like that ever again. So I, re I read this whole article and she was just like, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? But then my saving grace was, is that uh, it was probably a few weeks after reading that um, I was watching think NBC and they're like and today we're going to be talking to Mandy Moore and she's going to talk to us about going to Kilimanjaro and climbing to the top and I'm like oh I can do this I'm not gonna let Mandy Moore beat me this is not going to happen so <laughs> <laughs> luckily it was like a really good moment of just kind of a you know one of those things kind of pushing me in the in the you know, back of my mind where I was kind of almost talking myself out of it a little bit like God, do I really want to do this I mean you know, here's somebody who's spent their life being in like top physical condition, but it's, it, it comes down to a lot of things that, um, part of it was a little bit of dumb luck and that my mom happened to reach out to me right before I left too and said, have you talked to your uncle? And I'm like, no, I haven't talked to him. And why? And she said, well, you know, he used to lead youth groups up to the, you know, troubled kids up to the tops of the mountains and stuff in Colorado. And I'm like, Oh my God, you're right. I completely forgot about that. So luckily, and I think it was one of the reasons that for me, I didn't have the issues that Scott had, um, was that he taught me about, talked to me about rhythmic breathing. And that made a huge difference in the way that I was able to approach the mountain because I was able to control my breathing more. Um, and 
it, it kind of takes some of the, it's almost, uh, it, it becomes like a, a chant or a mantra in your head because you're having to make sure that you don't breathe any more than you're, than you're walking. So if you're taking three steps, you're inhaling for three and then you're exhaling for three. You never get into a situation where you're walking faster than you're breathing because when you're doing that, it starts basically putting your body into a situation where you're burning up more oxygen than you're taking in. That's how you get high altitude sickness. So um, that, that was like a real fortunate, you know, 11th hour thing that kind of came across the desk. My mom going, well, have you talked to your uncle? And I'm like, no, I haven't. But so it really pays to learn as much as possible um, about anything that you're going to go into like that. Absolutely. And, and it also helps uh, for us. Scott had done a lot of research on the front end. And um, the guys that we went with were highly, you know, uh, they had just great reviews and stuff. And uh, when we were there, this was the last time that they were going to be working for someone else. And they started their own company called Kilimanjaro Experts. So again, if anyone is interested in going off in that particular direction and want to try something like that, I would not recommend anyone higher than those guys strictly because, I mean, they saved my friend's life and everything that they did in the planning stage uh, and the ascent and coming back down was very thoughtful. Um, we ran into a couple of groups where when we were right near the top, there was a woman that was just walking down the face of the mountain by herself. And he was, and Joshua was just like, this is not right. She should not be by herself. But they're like in anything, they're unscrupulous, you know, people that are running these kind of things and they won't hire the amount of staff that you should have to be able to do it safely. And so she, there was like two people and there was only one person that went up with them. So if both of them went down, who, who brings the other one down? You know, if they both got sick and, um, and what, you know, I was able to see with this whole situation is that you, you know, even seasoned pros and what we ran into some of those because everybody goes to a certain hamburger place once you get back to Arusha and everybody gets their certificates and stuff signed by the guide and it's signed by the park service and all this kind of stuff that you made the ascent. And, uh, we were at a small table and uh, Scott and I and three or four of the guys, and there was a big table with a bunch of dudes from Belgium at the other and they're all, oh, no, you know, toasting and doing all these beers. And one of the guys comes over, uh, one of the tour guides comes to our table and he starts talking to Joshua and he's talking in English a little bit. Then he starts talking in Swahili to him. And I see Joshua kind of rolling his eyes a little bit and he's like, okay, all right. Okay. Okay. And so the guy walks off and I was like, what was that all about? He's like, uh, he was, he was talking stuff about this man. He said, he was saying, you know, Oh, look at you. You only got two people in your group. Look at my group. I'm so much better than you. And I was like, well, that doesn't mean anything. He goes, no, it does not mean anything. He said, did you notice his hands? I said, no, I didn't. He says, he only has two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and it was because six months ago, this guy had been doing it his entire life. He got caught in a snowstorm on the top, got lost, and uh, he got frostbite and lost all but two of his fingers. So he's like, I think that I am doing better than him. <laughs> it's like, I would say yes, so. I, 
I would say you are. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, we like to end the podcast with um, an opportunity for some comic relief. Uh, we all enjoy hearing inspiring stories, but when we wrap up the podcast, we like to have some comedy. So I'm wondering, Mike, if you have a funny story um, on your journey that you'd be willing to share with us. Uh, yeah, there was there was something that was pretty pretty fun. Um, I actually videotaped this, so we had you know long photos. We had part of this it was like a whole video thing montage was going on too. Um, but we had been walking for a while, and it was kind of funny because when we first got on the bus, you know, we have all these porters, and they're just kind of looking at us, and I'm sure they were looking at me like, you know, you know, God, I hope that guy didn't go down because it's gonna take like five of us to carry him off the mountain, you know. Um, but after, you know, we drove there and it was very quiet. But after the first day of hiking, um, every, we start talking each other. We're asking about families, politics, things in the world. And uh, then it, it was probably like day three. We've been walking for quite a while. And uh, one of the things that you realize is that a lot of Disney movies, especially like Lion King and stuff like that, they use Swahili, like Hakuna Matata is actually Swahili. And they, they say it all the time, Hakuna Matata, and all this kind of stuff. So Scott was like walking along, and I'd been videoing for a few minutes, and uh, he's up there, and one of the guys is walking with him, and he says, uh, he's like, so Scott's like, so tell me, man, um, how is it? How do you, how do you say this? And he's like, you know, whatever it was. And Scott's like, he's like, he goes, no, no, no. And so they're going back and forth. And then Scott turns around and, to me and says this stuff in Swahili to me. And so I stop and I'm like, Scott, dude, you need to just cut this out. He's like, what? No, I'm trying to learn. I'm like, no, nah, man. You don't know. This guy's probably telling you that you're going to be walking around, walking up to people going, you know, hi, my name is Scott. My mother is a goat, you know, or something crazy like that. And the guy is like, that's what's going on, isn't it? And the guy's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're busted, man. You're busted. It's like, yeah, you might want to like get your Swahili book out before you go spout that at the restaurant when we get back. There's no telling what's going to happen, dude. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Just good-natured fun between people that were just on a on a expedition together, and you know we wanted to get to the top, and they wanted us to get to the top because that's that's a source of pride for these guys. That um, it's just unbelievable when you think about it. Um, they do it every other week, and for us, it, it one evening I sat down and did the math. And Joshua had been doing this for 17 years, every other week for 17 years. And so I, I extrapolated out the height of the mountain and then did that every other week and then multiplied it all together. And it, it was something like crazy. It, basically, he's walked from the distance from the earth to the moon. And wow. the number of times he's taken people up and down uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. So, and I, I put it to him that way. And he's like, oh, I think I've really done something. <laughs> like, yes, you yeah, have, man. It's incredible. So. Wow. Wow. Such a great story. And you guys really did it. So you made it to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and sounds and like. Scott's a still, 
Yeah, Scott's still doing it. He sent me a picture the other day. Um, he was on one of the volcanoes outside of uh, Antigua in Guatemala. And off in the distance, you see it blowing up and he's like pointing at it. He can't see it, but he's pointing at it. And I'm like, Scott, you're crazy, man. But uh, I, I still climb and uh, maybe within the next year, depending on you know how things pan out with what's going on now and whatnot, um, I would like to go climb Aconcagua if I can. And that's the tallest mountain in the world outside of Tibet. It's the highest in the Western Hemisphere and the highest in South America. So wow. Wow. that's that's my next big, big, if I can pull that in. That may, that may be the end of extreme mountain climbing for me. I don't know. The other ones after that, on the, when you do the seven summits, are pretty hardcore. So I, I don't, you know, I enjoy it, but I don't want to die doing it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us, Mike. Thank you for being on this episode of Goalpost and sure. uh, and just inspiring others. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Great. Thank you. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your journey. What an inspiring story. You know, we too can climb the mountain ahead of us. I'm reminded of Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for being with us. God bless. If you'd like more information, be sure to visit us at goalpost.online. That's goalpost.online. Thank you.